Welcome to the Wilds Cast. Today's guest is Rabbi Chaim Miller. His 2011 compilation, The Lifestyle Books, Torah, Five Books of Moses, Slinger Edition, was distributed to thousands of servicemen and women in the U.S. Army. In 2013, he was chosen by the Jewish press as one of 60 movers and shakers in the Jewish world. His latest works include Turning Judaism Outward, the first full biography of the Luba Victor Rebbe, and the multivolume Practical Tarnia, which has set new standards in the translation of Hasidic thought for contemporary readers. Okay, we are live. Welcome to the Wildscast. My friends, our listeners to the MGE podcast, I am so excited. Uh, this afternoon, we are in the second of our three-part series, uh, a uh, October month of transcendence. Last week, we were privileged to hear from, I was able to interview Rav Daniel Katz, and this week, Rabbi Chaim Miller. This is a personal thrill for me because I've been studying so much of Rabbi Miller's incredible, incredible works, and they've meant so much to me personally, to my family, and to the MGE community. Let me give you a quick bio, and then we're going to jump right in into some questions. Hello, Rabbi Miller. Welcome. Hello. Thank you so much for inviting me on this. I'm so excited. It's such a pleasure and honor. Where are you? You have great background there. I'm in Midtown. This is real. It's not a, uh, it's not a green screen. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Welcome. So for those of you unfamiliar, Rabbi Chaim Miller was educated at the Haberdashers Askey's School. Did I pronounce that right? In London? Yes. And studied medical science at Leeds University. And it was at the age of 21 that he first began to explore his Jewish roots in full-time Torah study. And it was less than a decade later that he published the best-selling Kol Menachem Chumash. Chumash is from the word Chamesh 5, the five books of Moses, the Gutnik edition, which made over a thousand complex discourses of the latent great Lubavitcher Rebbe easily accessible to the layman. It's an unbelievable work that I use almost every, every week on Shabbat. Uh, his 2001 compilation of Lifestyle Books, Torah, Five Books of Moses, the Slager edition, was distributed to thousands of servicemen and women in the U.S. Army. And back in 2013, Rabbi Miller was chosen by the Jewish press as one of 60 movers and shakers. I was never elected as a mover and shaker. In the Jewish world, and his latest works include Turning Judaism Outward, first bi a full biography of Lubavitch Rebbe, which I also read, was excellent, and the multi-volume Practical Tanya has been just amazing. And just want to say again for me personally, Rabbi Miller's translation and his commentary on the Tanya, which is a classic work of Kabbalah and Hasidut, has opened up a new world for me personally of Kabbalah and Hasidut and for the many MJE students who have been studying, all of us using Rabbi Miller's translations and commentary. Rabbi Miller lives in Brooklyn, New York, with his wife, Chani, and Bli Einhara, their seven children. Welcome to the Wildcast, Rabbi Miller. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I'm going to get right into this. Tell us a little about your background. Uh, where are you from? Um, well, we can hear it in your accent, but how were you raised Jewishly, and what inspired you to devote yourself uh, to doing so much writing and disseminating Kabbalah and Hasidic wisdom? That's a great question. First of all, I want to thank your family because it's only due to your father that I'm here. You know that. And your brother Michael, because we had tremendous immigration problems and they, they, um, they both helped us. So we have a family connection. We have a family um, connection. I just want you to know some of the most amazing people I've met in my life okay, have been through my brother and my father's incredible immigration work. Uh, and from Great Britain, like John Lennon and some others. It's <laughs> uh, a flattering comparison. <laughs> I, you, I, I haven't heard your voice, but, you know, well, you know. But anyway, it, that is exactly how we met originally. But tell us about your background. So I grew up in England, um, and we were, you don't have it so much in the United States, but we were probably what you would call socially orthodox. There's not a big conservative movement in England. And when I grew up, reform was relatively small. So the vast majority of secular Jews were affiliated with orthodoxy and still today to some extent. Um, so that left um, me 
in a lot of confusion because basically you have to fake, there's an element of fraud and faking if you're not living an orthodox life but presenting as one. And you know, the British were, generally the British were quite happy to do that. They would rather that than invent some sort of new denomination, but it comes with a, a price on your soul. So as a child, we were always kind of, you know, pretending to be orthodox, not really being, and we were traditional. We, you know, we, we had a Seder. We went to, we definitely went to synagogue, not that regularly, but, you know, we went. And um, so we were very, you know, I was very Jewish. All my friends were Jewish, was very immersed in Judaism. But um, what was totally lost on me was any sense of uh, deep intelligence in Judaism. And it was only when I was in college, I'm 20 years old, and I was studying medicine, but I was looking for deeper meaning. What's the meaning of life? There must be some meaning here. And I decided to go to philosophy lectures. And yeah, we studied some Greek philosophy. It was interesting, but didn't really hit home. And so I went to the um, university bookstore. And I can kind of picture this. It was a, a transformative moment in my life. I can kind of see it, re remember the vision. And I was looking through, you know, some, let's buy some philosophy books. There was no internet in those days. You had to buy a book <laughs> if you wanted to study something. And I saw Moses Maimonides, Guide for the Perplex, in the philosophy section. And it was a kind of aha moment. It's like, really? A rabbi has something intelligent to say? That's so odd. He's had something philosophical to say? I mean, I thought I knew what Judaism was. I'd been to bar mitzvahs and synagogue and Torah and Kiddush and a bris. And I, was, I wasn't particularly. I had some education. I couldn't learn a, a, a page of Talmud, but, you know, I, I knew something. I thought I'd experienced Judaism, and it was purely social, ethnic, you know, a religious backdrop. I never imagined to look to Judaism for meaning. It was just not... I, I was 100% convinced there wasn't anything more than, than what I'd experienced. So that was a tremendous shock for me, and I bought the guide for Perplexed, and I read it, and... It was a major shift for me. I mean, as you know, the, the Maimonides is trying to reconcile Aristotelian metaphysics with Judaism, which is not our problem today. But the very fact that there was such a um, erudite and um, brilliant uh, attempt at, at, at bringing Judaism into this intensely intellectual space was transformative to me. Wow. So that was really the beginning of my adult journey. And that was uh, subconsciously... I'd, Judaism had opened a story for me that hadn't closed. You know, we are storytelling animals. Um, Yuval Harari in his book Sapiens describes like the, the core energy of the human. The way we communicate is by telling stories. Judaism for me was a story. You know, I'm Jewish. My friends, I'm told I should marry Jewish. There's a synagogue. But what does it really mean? It can't just mean pretending something you're not. And even though I wasn't looking to Judaism for the answers, the fact that it came from there helped me kind of put an end, well, not an end, but a, a continuum to that story of what it meant to me to be a Jew. Wow, thank you for sharing that. You know, the, the first thing I'm thinking is, how great is it that a university library has Maimonides' Guide to the Perplexed, and how important is it? You know, when I wrote my first book, I, I worked so hard to get it into Barnes & Nobles because I'm like thinking that's where... Mm -hmm at least some New Yorkers, you know, are going to be checking out, not necessarily Judaism, but whatever other books they're interested in reading. So I think that's, that's just a simple lesson taken from that. So then you, you, you read Maimonides' Guide to Perplex. It, it opens up this whole new spiritual slash philosophical place yes. for you in Judaism. And, yes. and then what? I mean, and then you just start taking your Judaism more seriously, your observance. You start studying. I mean, how do you go from that to... Uh, authoring. I mean, uh, one of the questions uh, I sent you these questions in advance. Like, I just can't get how you've written so much. How do you go from that? I mean, you didn't have what we would consider in America a Jewish day school education, did you? No, no. I had from the age of eight to thirteen. I had a Sunday school education, so it wasn't that much. You know, I then, could read. I knew what the months were. You know, I knew some basic stuff, but no, not. I couldn't translate Hebrew. And then when you, in high school, where'd you go to high school? Um, you read it out, the Haberdashers Ask School. That was like a, a, a place where 
it wasn't purely Jewish. There was actually a quota at the time of how many Jews they were allowed in the school, kind of telling. But it was it was a high-end English prep school, and um, very the Jews that wanted to succeed in life and make an impact. It was full of kind of wealthy, um, ambitious Jew. Uh, Sasha Baron Cohen was there. He was in the year above me. That's it. Just, could you just imagine like fifty, a hundred Sasha Baron Cohens? <laughs> That was what my schooling was. Right, Borat. But but <laughs> let, but let me ask you this: So you you don't have no Jewish time. content there. No. You don't really have any much Jewish content. Elementary, high school. Yes. You read this book on Maimonides' Guide to Perplex in a university library. You get turned mm -hmm. on, and then and then what? Well, I ended up going to yeshiva. We had a, a little group. There was a minion in my college. A uh, few boys that had like learned in Gush Etzion and a few other people who were like wanted to go to Minyan. So I was exposed to like kids who'd learned in Yeshiva. And um, I used to start giving the speeches. I didn't know what I was talking about, but I liked this little, I didn't like um, synagogue when I was a kid. And I didn't, after my bar mitzvah, I just didn't go back. And then actually the Gulf War happened. That was a major event. And um, we were up all night worrying about Israel. And then in the morning, someone came along and suggested everyone should put on tefillin. Wow. It, to, to help Israel. Yeah. And I kind of was dragged along. I wasn't, you know, why not? And I hadn't put on tefillin since my bar mitzvah. So that was also kind of opening up. Like, let, let me, now I'm an adult and I'm, I wasn't at college at home. I'm on my own. So let me kind of re-examine it on my own terms. I, so I started praying in this minion and um, I liked it. It wasn't, it was different from the, the synagogue I'd grown up with. It was kids my age and we could right. kind of connect and then eventually, uh, there was a wonderful uh, campus rabbi. His name is Jonathan Dove. I don't know if he's listening, but shout out. He was in um, Leeds. He lives now in London. And uh, I became very close with him. And then um, he encouraged me to, to study in yeshiva. And that's what after three years of... I, I, I switched from a... Med, medicine is an undergrad in England. So I switched yeah. it just to a medical science degree. Finished that in three years. And then um, went off to yeshiva. Officially first for a year, but then I, I stayed. And, and was it a, I mean, had you been exposed to Chabad Lubavitch yet? And was it a, a Chabad yeshiva you went to? It was a Chabad yeshiva. It was Morristown, uh -huh. New Jersey. Uh -huh. And they, the summer before, I had gone to a Chabad program in the Catskills. Oh, which, wow. Uh, so that was my initial exposure. Interesting. And, and how have you pulled off writing so many books? I mean, you're a relatively <laughs> young person, and the nature of what you've written requires such a huge amount of research and scholarship. I, I want to, I really, I'm just asking this because I've written to, you know, I have a pretty busy life like you do, but any time management skills that you could share? Um, I mean, I, I really, I want to bring out two things. Number one, how did you go from, you know, not having had, had that exposure to, you know, complete immersion in that to the degree where you can write what you write? And how do you find the time and, and put out so much? Well, first of all, I was utterly fascinated by it and, you know, um, driven by a love of wisdom. When I was a kid, my father, he's retired now, he should be well, live, live long. Uh, um, he was a pharmacist and opposite his pharmacy was a secondhand bookstore. And every day he used to buy me a book, right? every day, but regularly he was constantly bringing home books and I amassed a huge collection as a kid, a book, my room was just full of books. And it, it developed in me this love of knowledge. And I just, even if I didn't read them, I would just browse them and, 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 and I would f just feel very curious. So when I discovered uh, particularly Hasidic wisdom through the Tanya, um, I fell in love with these ideas because it was the convergence of um, philosophy, of, of psychology and Judaism really, all in one integrated system. And it just, I just kept discovering more and more and more and, and, and couldn't believe that, you know, I was constantly amazed that this stuff existed. And still to this day, I still, you know, almost every day I have some sort of wow moment. Wow, I didn't know Judaism had that. I didn't know I had that insight. Uh, so that, that propelled me. Practically in terms of time management, um, I think this is definitely true nowadays. We are distracted people. I mean, our phones are just buzzing in our pockets. We have notifications popping up from all over the place. And we, we, have, we are rapidly losing the art of uninterrupted time. And uh, I, I, for me to write, I need to get in a kind of flow state. 
uh, where everything just kind of feels in alignment and my mind is working, it's going into thought, it's going into words, it's coming out on the keyboard. Uh, and it's not that easy to get into that kind of state and to do it, you need, I find I need long periods of uninterrupted time. So I try, I try and kind of switch off my phone for four or five hours a day. So I just get a stretch where um, I'm fully immersed. And for me, I've also got to be well rested, well fed. You kind of, kind of optimize your your system, and then and then to develop some sort of intense curiosity. I would even call it an obsession. I develop a, a, a kind of obsessive interest in a particular topic. I want to devour it. I want to know everything about it, and I want to communicate it. And, I, and there's another point which I'd like to share with you that, as much as I love. Judaism and ideas. I love people as well. Mm-hmm. Probably like people more. So I'm not kind of I'm not immersing in this stuff just to become the world's greatest academic or just to just to accumulate knowledge for myself. My passion is really sharing it for people. And writing is an art of communication. It is a um, process of you're doing it for the people. You're not doing it for yourself. I'm not doing it so I can have a book to sell. Yeah, so, I, I, so, I feel so that, that, by the way. I, you should just know that that comes across in your writings because the first Thank time you. You, and I, you and I met physically was at a wedding. And I just remember it was like I'd read some of your material and then I saw you and I was like, he's such a friendly, warm guy. <laughs> and But then when you read the right – I find that you know you're, you're dealing with some very esoteric topics in Kabbalah yes. and mysticism, and even though Hasidic wisdom is there to try to distill it and and make it accessible to the layman, it's mm-hmm. still hard material. And the Western minds, Aristotelian logical, you mm-hmm. know, was not necessarily geared towards that. But I do find, uh, and I think you've been very successful at this in being able to imagine what a typical Joe Jew, if you will. Mm-hmm. Mm. average Jewish citizen without the greatest background. I mean, I've been able to hand off your Tanya to, to complete beginners to Judaism. And that is, that's to your credit. And, and you wrote mm. the biography on the Lubavitcher Rebbe in exactly the same way, in an accessible way. Um, and, and even when you're analyzing the Rambam, who could be incredibly you know, difficult intellectually, it's just, it's just done in a very, very user-friendly way, not being concerned if people are going to see this as scholarship, but they're not going to see this. You want people to understand it. And uh, you should just know that that really comes across. Thank you. Um, Thank you. I'll tell you a secret. I write to my 20-year-old self. That's what I do. Mm-hmm. My 20-year-old secular, I'm educated, I'm curious, but I kind of know nothing. That's, mm-hmm. I try and empathize with that mindset. You know, I struggle with this because maybe I have a, I don't know if it's a chip on my shoulder, maybe I want to sound, you know, but I grew up in a world, I grew up in the Yeshiva University world, which is, could be very academic, intellectually rigorous, mm-hmm. Rav Soloveitchik, all of my, all of my Rebbeim and teachers were Rav Soloveitchik students. And the more complicated, sophisticated you sound, you know, <laughs> and, and, and I'm not trying to imply that the Rav or any of his great Talmidim any of his great students are just trying to sound smart. They actually were and are brilliant people. But it's like a certain kind of cultural milieu. It's not snobby, mm. but it, it just um, – and I find that your writing is just cutting through that. And mm. it's enabling a whole new generation to access wisdom. Uh, and, and I've tried, by the way. I, I, I was observant yeah. and, and learning for many years already when I was 20. So I'm not writing to when I was 20. I'm writing mm. to to your to my, your constituency yeah. to my constituents. Um, yes. But I, I I think um, you have a certain advantage there because you're you. A <laughs> um, couple of questions. Um, you wrote in one article that one of the greatest lessons of Judaism, and I quote: "Every descent you said is for the sake of a future ascent. Never mm. perceive a failure." as an isolated event. It's part of a learning curve. What, what did you mean by that? Yeah, that's a fundamental Hasidic teaching. It's quoted in all the Hasidic literature. It says, every, every, well, literally every going down is for the sake of a going up. But in English, I would translate it as every setback is part of the progress, part of the um, way forward. Um, 
What I meant by that is to highlight, in addition to this um, metaphysical wisdom and philosophical wisdom in, in Hasidic uh, literature and deep theology, and you know, you call this what the October of transcendence, uh, you know, this, this, uh, this yearning for transcendence. There's also really good motivational material in Hasidic literature. And if you listen to like the great motivational people like Tony Robbins and all these people giving seminars, a lot of it sounds very familiar to me from Hasidic wisdom that basically, oh no, so you have a setback. How are you going to relate to that? Uh, are you going to get derailed by it? Are you going to take it personally? Or are you going to just kind of move forward? And how do you move forward after a setback? Um, lady, the, um, what's her name? The lady on Shark Tank, uh, Barbara Corcoran. Yeah, yeah. She was interviewed and she, you know, she has this real estate business. And she said the difference between the real estate agents that make millions every year and the ones that don't succeed is the ones that make millions they they don't get derailed from failure mm -hmm. they just push forward and it is human nature to be personally offended uh, when the universe tells you they're not very happy with what you were doing but but what this teaching kol yurid sarachalia means is basically something a setback occurred a rejection take that as knowledge okay so now you know that's not the way to you know now you know if you approach it that way that doesn't work or now um I'm tremendously sensitive person by nature, and I'm involved in, you know, my work is something that I fund. I have wonderful benefactors and friends who support my work. But mm -hmm. as you know, you have to seek benefactors. Sure. And, um, you know, for every person that comes on board, 20 people are not interested, and that's tremendously difficult. As a sensitive person, I find that very difficult. And for years, I was like, you know, I would just want to creep in a hole. But through this kind of teaching, I've learned, you know, you program your mind. Okay, so now I know that person's not interested. Right. Or now I know it was the wrong pitch. Or now I know I'm doing the wrong thing. And, and, and not to let the, the ego get swallowed up in it and, and to feel. I mean, the difference between the Hasidic reading and the Tony Robbins reading is the Hasidic reading is filled with faith that God is by your side. God is guiding you. Your overall journey is going to be one of ascent one of Aliyah in your life. But, you know, like when the GPS, you take a wrong turn, it recalculates and takes you another route. So there's a lot of kind of, you know, success is not, it's right. more like. <laughs> <laughs> even even so, people listening to this can figure out what you <laughs> But But, you know, that, that, that line you just used, um, first of all, John Maxwell wrote that great book, Failing Forward. Yes. And I, um, he wrote and, about a hundred books ago. He keeps yeah, but, books, but that, it's all about, I just love that idea that, uh, you know, it was Thomas Edison who was interviewed by a young upstart reporter after um, he uh, eventually um, created the alkaline battery. Hmm. And the reporter said, you'll appreciate this, the reporter asked him, how did it feel to fail so many times? And he said, I never failed once. Now I just know the 9,000 ways it won't work. <laughs> right. So, But, it's, but in so, other words, if yeah. that if – that, and it's hard, and, and your example of fundraising resonates with me personally because it's mm. 100%. I've sat in many an office um, and gotten just a, a blank stare or a no, mm. and you just have to keep moving on. But how great would it be if every time we did, quote-unquote, fail, we failed forward? We yes. learned something from that experience, and we didn't just sort of like, Ugh, I don't want to go back there, but we can somehow... We do it in hindsight. Hindsight is twenty twenty vision. The challenge is in the moment when you've just fallen to feel that, no, actually, I'm on my way up still. Yeah, yeah, that's such a great message. Thank you. Um, how um, You've released many, many books. Um, the five books of Moses, the Slager edition, which went to thousands of U.S. soldiers, which I yes. think is just, um, you know, how did Currently, that come about? Uh, oh, how did that come about? We've given about 30,000 of those out to um, members of the, in the U.S. services. And wow. uh, it also gets distributed, actually, to Jewish inmates in prison. Uh, so this, this was the second chumash that I uh, had the privilege to compose. That You know, Jews are very critical. So when I came out with my first uh, chumash, everyone said it's too complicated. And, you know, we're kind of a soundbite generation. We need soundbites. And I, it wasn't really my natural... I've been so captivated by the depth and the complexity of what I discovered. I didn't really want to you know, dumb it down. down. Yeah, into yeah. sound bites. But, you know, people want it. The people want it. So um, yeah. I did another version, which was also kind of more of a very dark. My first chumash was 
predominantly the teachings of Lubavitcher Rebbe. But yeah. then the second one was I broadened out and just drew from everyone, really, uh, all the orthodox thinkers. And um, I tried to, you know, I, I was in Barnes and Nobles and I saw that all the Christian Bibles are like color and they have like these friendly questions and, and, and you know, they, they, they're kind of... They're very they're inviting. They're yeah, very inviting. and it's like, hey, why don't we have a chumash like that? That's like right. colorful. Why does a chumash have to be in black and white? And why can't it just have like questions for thought and like little nuggets and bits and pieces? So um, I, I, I developed, you know, on that on those themes, something that you know, a complete outsider or someone who has very very little exposure can can um, you know connect with, and also something that is focusing on the site the. I call it lifestyle because Torah insights that we can use practically in our life to to make you know make ourselves better people a better day, not just the theoretical and the abstract, and just interpreting scripture for the sake of it. So uh, I developed this book called The Lifestyle Torah. It has a big yad on the front, and um, so it was selling. It's used as a synagogue kumash, but it's also then we printed up like a little one, a pocket one. I have the and, pocket uh, one. I love. Oh, it. you have it. Yeah. Okay. I yes, it. I sent you one. Yes. You sent me one. And, and so there's a wonderful up. organization called Aleph that um, helps people in the U.S. forces and in, in prisons, and we've uh, collaborated with them to to give out. We're currently on about thirty thousand of those, That's and it's incredible. been and it's been given out to um, students. The um, Chabad on Campus organization, which has huge reach in America, with about two or three hundred locations, they gave it out also to to students. Um, I had when I was in medical school, I uh, in my uh, apartment uh, there was a young lady called Lara Dahaz. I don't know if Lara is watching, but she, um, she we were studying medicine together. We were both in medical school, and then was not in so much contact with her. And she messaged me a couple of years ago and said, "You won't believe this that I was in a Judaica store, and it was my son's bar mitzvah. <laughs> it's coming up to my son's, and I told him pick any chumash you want." <laughs> That's what he chose. To study. And he picked this lifestyle one, and she opens it up, and she's seen the, my name. She sees her name. Oh, I love that. <laughs> so let, let me get to the Tanya a little, because it's the one that's been so impactful to me and to a lot of my students at MGE. Uh, you were kind enough to ask me to write a word of praise for you when you first came yes, out. Yes, and I was it. very honored that and, you agreed to do that. Oh, it was uh, – I want to read you. I wrote, and, I, and now I really can – it's in the book, right? Isn't it in the it's book, in the book. Right in the front? In the book. Yes. I'm reading it from the book. A wonderful <laughs> work which makes the Tanya accessible and understandable to a whole new generation of spiritual speakers. How did you make it so accessible? And are you at all surprised that learning this very esoteric book has become, I don't know if you want to say it's cool, but it's somewhat of a chic thing for young professionals to study? I'm absolutely delighted. And, you know, that was really my intention. I did not write, uh, I mean, all my friends in Chabad, I, I love the Chabad movement. I didn't really write it for, for Chabad people to learn because I, I figured they kind of understood it already, although many have benefited from it. And I'm happy that, you know, based Rivka and the Chabad schools, they're all using it. But my hope was really that, you know, young professionals and people like that should, should, should benefit from it. You keep saying it's esoteric, but it's not, it, it, it's, there's something very, I want to kind of push back on that a little bit. Yeah, it does please. draw on esoteric doctrine, but there's something very relatable about the Tanya. Sure. It doesn't come across as this arcane or very obscure text. You, you get, my, my reaction when I first read it was like, this, this man kind of understands me, or there's something, it's about struggle, basically. Oh, it's the about, track. yeah, there's this huge yeah. amount, and, and I want to actually get into that for a few minutes with you, with, yes. your, with your permission. So yeah, of course. In, in the book, let's talk about the practical aspects. You speak about the two different parts of the soul, right? The lowest part of the soul, the nefesh. You've got the nefesh behemoth, the animal soul, and the nefesh elokit, the godly soul. So can you explain to our listeners why, according to Kabbalah, why does God create us with this more physically base-driven part of us? I mean, why does God give us this struggle our whole life? He creates us with this part of us that wants to do the right thing, that's connected to God. It's a piece of God, as you say, you know, mamish, like literally a piece of God. But then there's this other piece that's, that's just animal, and it mm. just wants to satisfy itself. I mean, if the whole goal is to bring God down to earth to create, as the Balatanya says, a dira batachtonim, a dwelling mm-hmm. in the physical world for God. Why does God make it so hard for us? So, you know that joke about the the guy that was betting on the bird that he could sing Kadavan Kol, Kol Nidre? 
I'm not familiar. No. So two guys were, were having a bet. Like, I bet you this this bird could uh, Darwin the Colnery. He'll be the cousin. So like, you're kidding. So he bets a load of money. I'm, I'm going to compact it. So, and then, you know, comes Colnidre, they put up the bird and everyone's looking. And of course, the bird doesn't say anything. <laughs> and then, so afterwards, the guy says to his friends, hey, you made a fool out of me and I lost a load of money. He says, no, let's put him up for the Ela. He really can, Darwin. Look at the odds we'll get. You know. <laughs> so actually, the Balatanya brings this in, his, in, one, in one of his discourses, that the reason why God wants our animal to um, serve him and to, to be sensitive to spiritual things is it's like a talking bird. It's like a talking animal. That's so outrageous that a bird can talk, a bird could daven. That would give us pleasure. And in fact, all jokes are funny because there's a twist, right? And, and somehow the way it's explained in Chassidut is that God would just, the, the idea of the animal side of us being interested in him and doing a mitzvah and, and having spiritual yearnings is so outlandish to God that it gives him tremendous pleasure. So it's, it's the animal side uh, which, which can kind of elicit more divine pleasure once it's tamed, once it's aligned with something holy. And, and can you elaborate on that? What do you mean give God divine pleasure? Oh. I, mean, <laughs> I mean, God... <laughs> You know, we don't really define God in that kind of way that, you know, uh, at least, I don't know. No, no, you know, that's also, you know, I'm, I'm presuming uh, certain things. Here. The, the Hasidic um, philosophy focuses very much on this idea of divine pleasure. And it's really actually in the Chumash. It says that when a sacrifice is offered, it says um, it's called a reyach nichoyach, which means a, a, a pleasant aroma. And Rashi brings from Chazal, which means that it gives me tremendous pleasure that I instructed you to do this and you followed my will. So it's, it is a classical idea, but it's amplified greatly in Hasidic teachings. That, you know, everyone has this question, why did God create the world? He's not getting anything out of it. So the Hasidic spin on that is he does get something out of it because he gets pleasure when you know, the very low, lowest creatures in, in the universe, which is not the angels and it's not the, you know, the, the holy beings up there, it's us down here. He gets tremendous pleasure when the most unlikely uh, of candidates for worship worship him. So I, I always explain, and maybe you know, maybe we have a disagreement, or maybe I'm wrong, that you know, God is just an all-giving being. God cannot help but to give. But it's not as though God, as a, that's kind of like an anthropomorphic human projection that God would have pleasure. Now it does say it's a good source, yes. that God somehow gets. A pleasure from this aroma, from the sacrifice, from the from the burning of the incense, yeah. what have you. So um, you're saying no, there is such an idea in Kabbalah that God is. This actually- is central. It's central to the, the Hasidic um, thinking. Uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel called one of his most famous books "God in Search of Man," which kind yeah. of really sums up that theme. That it's um, yeah true from a classical philosophical perspective, God is perfect, so He's not getting anything out of our our mitzvah. But from a Hasidic Kabbalistic uh, perspective, we actually become agents of. um, uh, Academics have a weird word for it; they call it theurgy, which I don't like because it just doesn't mean anything (laughs) to anyone. But what's basically happening is that, of course, God is perfect. But in order to create the world, there's divine energy, or what the Gemara would call midasadin, midasarachmin, divine attributes. That's what mm-hmm. it's called in the philosoph- mm-hmm. philosophical parlance. Or in, in the Kabbalistic parlance, it's called sefirot, or, or I would call them divine energies. It's the most simple way of explaining it. So God emanates this energy, which is itself divine, and that creates the universe. And we, we, can, we don't change the essence of God through our mitzvah, but we, are, we can uh, help these energies align better and bring the universe into alignment so things work better. So that, that's really kind of where it's targeting but there's and, also and, the element. So yeah. No, no, please keep going. Also the element. There's also the element of will. Divine will is emphasized very much in Hasidic teaching. So it says, mm-hmm. It's it's I get the pleasure because I said it and you did my will. So um, how can I illustrate this? There's a story. Um, one of my favorite kind of interactions between this person and the Lubavitcher Rebbe is this person said to the Rebbe, why can't I switch on a light on Shabbat? Because it's not really work. I get that you're not supposed to work. It's, you know, it's like a switch, it's not really work. And the Rebbe replied to her that for God to create the world was less work for him than you, flish, you flicking the switch. And he still didn't do it. 
<laughs> and there's a certain philosophical overtone to this story that basically there's not that much of God in the world. I mean, of course, the mountains and Everest and, and all the wonders of the world and physics and biology, chemistry, we see there's tremendous wonders in the world. But that's what kind of percentage of God did that capture? Very little, because there's so much more beyond the world that he couldn't put in the world. It was too great. Whereas when we say divine will, we're directly kind of cutting through creation. We're cutting through God as is manifest in the world, and we're going straight to his will, which is at the very core. If I will something, I'll give you an example. Supposing like I follow on Instagram, I've got a fan on Instagram. I love Scarlett Johansson. Right? So I'm following her posts. I'm liking her posts. I, you know, I, I'm going to the... Um, I actually went to the her movie that came out. The um, what's it called? Uh, one of the Marvel Marvel films. Yeah, you like those? I love Marvel films. Um, I just saw 007. Oh, <laughs> don't don't give any spoilers. Yeah. So people were turning up to this movie. They were dressing up as her. Like they were so you know in that kind of white. Right. So you know, so you like all the posts and you're following. Now, what if you DM uh, Scarlett Johansson one day? And say, you know, I love your, 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 um, your stuff. And she replies. <laughs> and she says, oh, it's glad you reached out. You know, send me, um, send me a note. Or, you know, she asks you to actually do something. Send me a picture of yourself. And you do that. So that's will. She expressed her will and you fulfill it. That's an amazing connection. That's much deeper than just liking her posts and following her movies, right? So when, right. when we look at the world, we're just, following, we're just following God's movie and we're liking it. But when we have a mitzvah, which is the divine will, you're connecting in, in, in something beyond the, the scheme of creation. You're connecting to a level of godliness, a, 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 which, which he couldn't fit into the world and only came right. through silence. And, and, and is that, I mean, I was going to ask you this a little later, but we're on it now. Would, would that be, in your opinion, the very purpose of, of, of keeping a mitzvah? In other words, not necessarily because it's going to give God nachas ruach, it's going to give God pleasure, like we were saying before, mm -hmm. but because it's following the Almighty's will is a, a tremendous connection. You, you, the example you gave with Scarlett Johansson is perfect. Like, in other words, that binds you when you're, when you're listening to someone and you're actually carrying out their instructions. Yes. That's going to connect you with the being that the commander, the mitzvah. Exactly. And that's why uh, Chassidus emphasizes that even though mitzvah technically translates commandment, you could also, it's also etymologically related to the Aramaic word tzavtsah, which means connection. So you should, you should translate mitzvah as connection, a connection ritual, connection technology, a connection opportunity. And then it also relieves a lot of the heaviness of it, you know, the burden, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. It's an opportunity for connection, at the deepest connection possible with the divine. That's a great, thank you. And, and, and getting back to the, how can one start um, feeling this kind of closeness to Hashem? I mean, the Tanya and the other great mystical thinkers like Ruf Cook, for example, taught that we all have within us, and it's one of my great love uh, for Hasidic teachings, is this concept of the, the Pintaliyid, or there's just this part of us that really wants to be close to God, that we just have to tap into it. God is not out there. <clears throat> he's within us. But it's hard generating those feelings. What can we do? What, what, what can you suggest to our listeners to help engender that feeling? That's a great question. Well, first of all, I say two things. First of all, um, you mentioned before the teaching of the Tanya that we have a Nefesh Elokis, a divine soul. So that's not that different from the classical rabbinic idea of Yetzirah, Yetzatov, bad inclination, good inclination, animal soul, godly soul. What is the difference? So I think the major difference is that according to the Hasidic version of it, the godly soul's in you. It's embodied. It's not like a voice outside your head. Um, it's something actually in your flesh. And therefore, you can... God's inside you. If you listen to your highest octave of your most authentic voice, you can hear it inside you. I think that's a very powerful insight. It is. Uh, and and, and but can I just stop you there, though? Because yeah. that's the issue, though. Because I have a lot of students have said, I, I don't listen to anything out there. I look inside. Mm -hmm. But we all know that we are 
you know, not to sound overly rational, but to a large degree, we are the products of our environment, of our teachers, of our mentors. Mm-hmm. If you spend enough time on college campus, you might not be tapped into the divine soul. You might be tapped into some other inner voice. How do you tell the yes. difference? Um, I think the divine voice within is very raw. It's not sophisticated. It's very... Um, I'll give you an example. The, there's a famous teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. The, the best way to pray, he based it on a verse about the uh, Parshas Nayach, Bo al Hateva, go into the ark. And Teva in Hebrew also means word. So he says, go into the word. What does that mean? Don't look at the cognitive meaning of the word. Look at the energetic composition of the word the shapes of the letters, the sound as it's coming off your, um, out of your mouth. And just be in that moment with that image and with that sound and just be present. And what he's trying to do, I think, this is my own commentary, he's trying to deconstruct the cognitive uh, skyscrapers that we build on all sorts of experience. Get back to raw experience. The Kabbalah says that you know, these divine energies have colors. Chesed, which is divine benevolence, is white. Uh, Gevura, which is divine um, judgment is red and teferis which is divine harmonization is green now that's not just a kind of color coding what, what the Kabbalists are really saying is that if you look at the color green okay so what's our natural reaction oh that's green but what you're really doing is the mind is just trying to put a label on oh it's green see you later now I know what that is but if you just look and stare at it for 90 seconds and just be there experience green that's a certain kind of um, resonance. There's a certain. I mean, when you go to art museums, we do this, but most of the other time we don't. Just to, just to, or a flower. Take a flower. The Zohar, which is the greatest work of Kabbalistic mysticism, begins with a flower. You want to understand God? Look at a flower and just take that image in. And obviously, it gives more details of how to guide you to to, to a higher thought. But basically, in the senses themselves, if you get to the raw energy behind the senses, you can feel pulsating energy. And that energy is the divine soul within you. So that's a kind of experiential method. Now, there's also intellectual method. I don't know if you started yet the second book of Tanya. Have you? uh... Yeah. Yeah. So that really was a book written to answer this question of how do we experience the divine in the everyday? And that's more of a cognitive approach rather than the Balshenta's experiential approach. And the, the basic teaching there is... Um, stop me if I'm getting too philosophical here. No, you, the, you have know. such yeah. a great way of explaining things. Thank so you. Before, before you were just talking about the experiential, and now you're getting to yes. show Yuchud Vemuna more the intellectual yes. approach. So there's an intellectual way of doing this. And basically, according to classical thought, philosophical thought, which kind of we're all reared on at some level, God creates the god is the ultimate cause maimonides says he's the first cause and he's so far removed from anything of our experience there has to be a whole chain of emanation each stage diluting or getting away from that first cause until we can have the direct cause of the universe which he would call the seichel hapal or the active intellect or in, in uh, you have the same thing in kabbalistic wisdom that you have malchus which is the last energy of the divine will actually creating the universe so you have that in all systems but the difference between the philosophical system and the Kabbalistic Hasidic system is, in the philosophical system, God is not the world, he's very far removed from it, and he's just a very, very distant cause. And that makes God distant, right? And Maimonides actually famously says in the Guide for Perplexed, he has the doctrine of neg- negative attributes. He says there's right. nothing you can say about God. You can't even say right. he's kind. Because when you think kind, you think of your mother, you think of your sister, and that, God's kindness is of a different order. So he says you can only say God's not unkind. That's how distant we are from God in the Maimonidean model. But in the Hasidic model, what happens is God is kind of in his own energy. He's bathing in his own energy. And he takes that energy and he packages it. And out of those packets of energy, he creates the universe. So instead of God causing the universe, he's kind of morphing into it. Right. And that's how you get the radical immanentism, I think that's the correct word, of Hasidic uh, doctrine that, You know, right here in the table, in the chair, in the flower, God is, divine energy is pulsating. In the beginning of Shah Yechavamun, he says, even a rock, even a rock, which is just a piece of, there's nothing alive, but there's no life signs in a rock. Even a rock has a soul, and that's that's the energy of God, and that energy is, is pulsating inside it. 
And you can access that by just kind of cognitively stripping away your sensory experience to understand mentally what is really going on there. And, and famously, he says in Shayach of Amunah that these packets of energy are the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Right. Um, right. We, we just studied that last week. That somehow the letters of the Hebrew alphabet encompass this energy of God that and through its configuration and reconfiguration, exactly, the Philofeltiots yes. and so yeah. on and so forth, the universe can then be created. But how do you then, uh, and I, again, I don't want to get too philosophical, even though we're, we're there already, um, <laughs> you know, because I'm, you know, I'll have my colleagues, mostly from Yeshiva University and the like, who will be mm -hmm. listening to this and saying, uh, you know, if you keep taking this, you know, if you keep listening to this, Rabbi Miller, go on and on and on. So then what's the difference between the desk I'm sitting at and God himself? Because the desk is just a manifestation of divine energy. That's the, that, the, the analogy, the model of the letters helps explain that. The letters aren't God, but they have some, they've absorbed some divine energy. Uh -huh. And from that energy um, comes into the universe. It's actually the idea of Shekhinah, which is in the Talmud. Shekhinah means uh, divine presence, and it's from the word Shochein, which means to actually invest or be enmeshed or be present. Uh, and so the idea of the divine manifesting in the physical world is, is a classic Jewish idea. The, all of Kabbalah is only amplifying of existing rabbinic ideas. Right. And, and, and the, so saying that the table or the mineral, the rock, has some divine energy is not saying that the rock or the table is God, but no. it somehow no. partakes of God because it's not just a symbolic representation. Yes. yes. That's the difference, you see. And I discussed this last week with Rabbi... Daniel Katz, which I think is the and That main... was fantastic, by the way. I watched that interview. Oh, okay. He's amazing. So, he's, um, he's unbelievable. Yeah. And, but we, we, we danced around this issue for a little while, which is, you know, the idea of, of like looking at things as symbolic ideas or as mm -hmm. actual. And the Kabbalah right. is more of the actual. Yes. Well, basically, if you imagine a building with uh, f four or five stories, you have there's different worlds in Kabbalah. There's different layers of reality. Yeah. So we're on the lowest layer in the physical world. And then the next layer is, say, every single f flavor of sushi, <laughs> every order of, you know, there's a hundred different things in a sushi restaurant. So they exist in the next world. Then as you go higher, there's like, well, we just need a few basic ingredients. And it becomes more, concept more into archetypes. Right. And so basically, everything in the physical world is a manifestation of, an of, a, of a divine archetype. And that's and, why, by the way, Jungian psychology is so similar to Chassidus, uh, because Jung uh, strongly believed that the collective consciousness um, was made up of different archetypes, which he discovered through dream interpretation. But he believed that there was an existing energy outside the individual, which, um, the, which all human behavior could be explained by. And I don't know if you know this, but on Jung's 80th birthday, he was interviewed. This is in print. I'm not making it. I didn't believe this till I looked it up. So you don't have to believe it till you look it up. But he said on his 80th birthday that, and I quote, everything I, all my ideas, he says, were anticipated by a great rabbi. And his <sighs> name was Dov Bear of Mizrich. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I thought about this for a long time. Like, what was Jung reading? Did he read the Tanya? But, but when, you, when it boils down to it, basically... The idea of Kabbalah Chassidut is that there are grand archetypes out there of which the human is a reflection. You know, the, 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 the most interesting verse as far as Chassidus is concerned is that the human was created in the image of God. And that's a very um, literal statement, really, from a Chassidic perspective, that the, the divine energies up there are the ultimate divine archetypes, and they are somehow manifest in our soul, in our psyche, and therefore by coming the certain aspects of human being and human behavior and human experience which reflect divine qualities. That's why it says in Eeyah, from my flesh I can perceive godliness. So there's this very deep enmeshment between grand archetype, which in, in Kabbalah is a sefirot, and then uh, human archetypes. So it's tremendous and, and, depth there. And it, there is. Um, why... Um... So how can, uh, you know, uh, this is the question I get all the time, and we're getting a little closer to the end, so I want to jump into this. Um, why should somebody pray if they don't feel it? And why should someone observe a mitzvah if they don't feel it? You know, I was once asked, I once asked when I was a student many years ago, one of my teachers, who's now my son's teacher, uh, when I was in yeshiva, if I'm not feeling like I'm in the mood to pray, what 
pushes me out of bed to Minion, put those tefillin on, perform whatever mitzvah. I'm not in the mood to give charity. I'm, suck it up. Do it anyway. Mm-hmm. What would you recommend to someone who's performing mitzvah, but it's not having the desired, at least emotional, effect? Well, that's everyone, basically, right? <laughs> Correct. That's why I'm asking. <laughs> not a particular person. We, we, we all have that experience. Um, I think there's a lot of interest. Obviously, this is an issue. This is a challenge we face. But I think there's a lot of interesting insights, especially from Hasidic wisdom, that you can get. First of all, going back to this idea of the animal, God gets more pleasure in this uh, uh, model that we were discussing before. And this is not to the exclusion of, you know, I, I accept all the models. I just particularly like the Hasidic one. I'm not trying to say this at the, at the expense of any other model. But, you know, if God really gets pleasure when the animal gets out of bed. Right. <laughs> so it's the un, when the uninspired person still goes and, and does a mitzvah, then in, in a sense that might elicit more divine pleasure. I'll, I'll, I'll give you another insight that it says in Chassidus that um, without the, the enthusiasm that you have and the love and the irreverence of God are like wings right. of a bird. It's actually from the Tikkun Zohar that a bird can't fly up to heaven without wings. And so the mitzvah, the, the, our kavanah and our, our sentiments and our enthusiasm and our goodwill, they elevate the mitzvah up to heaven. Okay, so if that's lacking, like the Baal Shem Tov once walked in a, a, a synagogue and said, this room is full of prayer, and they all flattered. And he said, no, I mean, they hasn't, your prayers haven't gone up because you're not really concentrating properly. Right. They're still down here. So uh, it says in Chassidus that supposing you do 10 mitzvot without any kavana, without any feeling, and then you do one with it, those wings can propel the previous 10. So you're not wasting your time. You're just you're depositing in your bank a, a mitzvah, and then when you have some kavanah, you'll cash it, and then they'll all be elevated. Uh, so you're doing it. It's a future. It's an investment to be able to inspire. Yes. In other words, it's there, and it's not being lost. Which exactly. Is, think, it's, not yeah. it's not a waste of time. It's not a waste of time. I mean, I always, same, I, Yeah, go ahead. It's the same with the prayer book. You know, you, you, you're going to concentrate on a hundred of pages of prayer every shacharis, but, you know, pick two or three pages that you're really going to... Everyone's got time to concentrate for a page, right? <laughs> so, so even if you don't have the time or energy or focus to concentrate on the whole thing, say, I'm going to do this, and then pick a p- different page every day, and then eventually, right. you know, you'll, you'll have kind of elevated the whole thing. And, and um, this, this is great. Where would Let me you... say one more thing about Please. this. Uh, because you were talking about this last week, so I had time to think about it. Mm-hmm. That there's another Hasidic insight. But these all kind of gel together. The Gemara says that we should always learn Shaloy Lishma, which is, you know, for insincere motives, because from coming to do it for the insincere motive, we'll come to do it eventually for the right reason. So there's, there's a, a, a beautiful Hasidic insight that said, you know, the word mitoch here is literally translated as from coming to do it, but it also means the inside. So I, I think it's from the Baal Shem Tov, or one of his students is the mitoich of the lolishma. Inside the insincere motive, there's a sincere motive. It's subconscious. <clears throat> Subconsciously, you're actually driven to connect with God. So, so, deep down in that soul, you have the divine soul within you. So somewhere there's kavana. You might not be conscious of it, and therefore uh, that's also kind of a driving force. Yeah, that's such a powerful... Um, you do need a lot of faith to believe that lurking beneath our surface is something really, you know, is this will to be able to, to carry out Hashem's command. Um, well, in every movie, the good guys win, right? It's not, this is a universal, you never have the bad guys winning. We, we, some part of us, and movies are just based on, you know. Yeah, nobody likes, and I'm not going to give yeah. away the 007, but somebody <laughs> said to me, he was very upset with the ending, and... Mm. And I'm not going to say what happened, but it explains what you just said. <laughs> that, well, in okay. other words, the fact that he was upset yes. because we, we, we like a happy ending. And I get you're saying we like a happy ending because existentially that's just the way we're hardwired. Yes. There's we, a desire we, to, yes. The, Ask a kid. Do you want to be good? Ask any child. You know, do you want by, to be by good? By the way, I, I, for my, my second son's bar mitzvah, we worked on a – you know, the, the Rebbe has a teaching like this where – why does the verse that teaches about shechacha, when a person is um, harvesting their crop and they leave something on the ground and a poor person picks it up, they yes. get a blessing. Yes. So I, I read this, I think it was in your translation, that the Rebbe, 
I think I got it from you, um, from, from the Rebbe, that because deep down you really mm. wanted to do that mitzvah. And I'm like, mm. you know, you get a little cynical. Deep down, what do you mean? The guy forgot it. Had he not forgotten it, he would have pocketed the crop, sold it, and used it for himself. Mm-hmm. But deep down, you really wanted it. So the fact that it fell really was mm-hmm. aligned with your deeper desire, which also right. explains that person yes, who's exactly. a recalcitrant husband who doesn't want to give his wife a get, you're allowed to beat him up, right? The Talmud, the Rambam, Paskins that way. Why? And the Rebbe said that, I don't know if the Rebbe it's said It's the Rambam says it. The Rambam says it. Right. But what's the reason? Why is it okay? Oh, yeah. The Rebbe, yeah, that elaborates on it. That deep down, he, he wants to do the mitzvah. I love that you're just, out. A, you're just aligning his external. Yeah, that does. It's an extreme <laughs> example, but it kind of you imagine it like up. well, the guy you're they're beating up the guy like we're just getting you on the outside, you know, to experience what's happening internally, you know. Uh, but it's right. I, I love that teaching. So, what would you say? Um, what what book would you recommend giving someone interested in beginning? Okay, if someone's listening all, to this whole all conversation. All my books. <laughs> All my books and your books. That's I kind. didn't know you've written books, by the way. I just saw in your email. I have to get your books. Uh, so mine are a little. Listen, dis- I, I'm, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah, go on. No, 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 please. You're going to say, which book would you start with from your books? Well, my personal journey really began with the Tanya, but I, maybe you have to be ready for that. You don't. I mean, it is a text. The other books that right. I've written, I adapt into my own voice because I felt I didn't like translating text because texts sound archaic sometimes or they're difficult. So right. I always thought the best way is just to put it in a contemporary voice. Um, and so in the Gutnik Chumash, there's a lot of kind of little boxes of, you know, sound bites and wisdom in the Lifestyle Torah. If you just want a kind of simple, pleasurable reading that's easy, but... Um, the something when it came to Tanya, I actually had a question like, do, "Shall I do the same thing? Just kind of adapt the ideas into essays?" And you know what? It would have been lame. You know, I'm thinking about yeah. it. I'm thinking about it. On one hand, it would be lame. On the other hand, the question is, when you look at the book, it's quite thick. Mm. Okay, um, and I'm just wondering if someone's going to look at it and not have the patience to go through the text and your yeah. brilliant translation and commentary. The question is, you know, will you feel, because I know you're a perfectionist, will you feel that you're doing it justice by, let's say, distilling the top 10 ideas mm. of Tanya? That would be, I think, very well read. Yeah. Uh, my <laughs> yeah. personal feeling is that Tanya, there's some magic in the text. Right. Yeah. Itself, and yeah. somehow it doesn't. People have done it. There are many books in Hebrew and some in English. Right. People try to do it, and none of them really, I mean, maybe I could try it, but... It, it's, right. There's something about the text itself that is magical. And it's also, you see, the Tanya is a unique book, and even though there's many hundreds of Hasidic books, most of them were not written by the Hasidic Rebbers themselves. The Hasidic right. Rebbers would speak by the Tish, and then right. students would write it down. Right. So a lot of them are kind of not very organized, or they're kind of contemporaneous. You know, they're just kind of little insights. The Tanya is one of the few books that was written by a Rebbe, and therefore and an early Rebbe. It's the third generation of Hasidus. So it has a kind of semi-systematic um you, you feel like you're going on, on a journey so i don't yeah. I, I, I question whether the 10 ideas would really work we could be done but i think there's some magic about the text itself yeah there is something about it i i yeah. i will say i'm going to just ask you one last question but before i do that i i want to say that learning tanya for me with my students and with my son um has been experiential for me Yay. meaning i i feel like it hasn't simply been getting this information, getting these ideas. Mm. I feel like the experience, whatever time I'm putting into it, so, um, and I don't think you'll get that from a little synopsis of some ideas. No. I don't think I'll you'll get I'll tell you, the, the, the Balatanya wrote in a letter, uh, before he wrote the Tanya, he had too many people visiting him. And he said that every time someone comes and visits me, I take a bit of their pain. Because he was wow. a, big, a great empath. And he... He said, I By the way, just so I, and people are listening to this, they may not even know that, that Balatanya was at Rav Shneer Zalmi Liadu, lived in the 1700s. He was like the next in the line from after the Baal Shem Tov's second student, the Maggid of Mezerich. Got this all from your introduction. Um, and, and he was just a, one of the great, great disseminators of Kabbalistic wisdom in the Hasidic world. Sorry, go back. No, excellent. So, um, what was I saying? I forgot now. 
Oh, oh, oh <laughs> he was such an empath. You said. Oh, yes. So he, he writes in a letter, every time someone visits me, I, you know, I take some of your pain. And, you know, my inbox is full. I can't take any more pain. I, I, I just can't take any more. And he said, if any more people come, I'm going to run away. And he says, Ani mamish. I literally hate my life. That's what he wrote. And this is like, you know, nowadays every teenager says, I hate my life. It's a common for, you know, Hasidic rabbis in the 18th century weren't speaking like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's, it's a very powerful statement. So he wrote the Tanya because he literally had so much empathy that he couldn't deal with people anymore. And he said, I'm going to put it in a book. So my theory is the reason why this book was so remarkable and kind of the first Jewish self-help book and, and over 200 years, it stood, that, I mean, to, you know, you and I, which completely different plays geographically, yeah. uh, you know, uh, uh, in, in the history of ideas and the history of the world from where he was planted. And yet we find it inspirational. Why I believe that he had such empathy that he managed to put that in a book, even though you can't put empathy in a book. Oh, it's in there. Yeah. Some, oh, it's some, in there. You, you feel it. And I think that that was the secret. It's in there. Just thinking about empathy a little, we'll finish with this, if you don't mind, just switch gears. Um, you spoke in YouTube about people being in love with being in love. Okay. <laughs> Where did you find that? I don't, the guy who wrote these being. questions. But anyway, forget about that. No, it's okay. I, it's I okay. want a little Kabbalistic Hasidic wisdom that we can leave our listeners to for developing relationships in 2021. What do you got for us that you can you can share that can be a little inspirational or insightful in terms of dating, in terms of your Bliain Hara blessed with many children and married for many years. Um, what um, what can you leave us with in terms of that? We, you know, most of MG years are 20s and 30s, and mm. we've thankfully facilitated over 300 marriages. You know, are a lot of serious? people. Met, oh my God, that's amazing! Thank God, Leon Howard. I mean, wow. people have met. People just meet, and then we help them get to the chuppah. You know, so I'm always looking for more wisdom. <laughs> okay, forget everyone else. What can you tell me? Um, I, I think that the model for intimacy from Chassidic Kabbalistic wisdom is based on a verse in Ezekiel, Nicheskel, that says, which means that the highest the angels were running and returning, which means they, they wanted to be close to the Shekhinah, the divine feminine. They, they, so they ran forward and then it was too intense, so they ran backwards. And this really describes intimacy is not a static process. It's a dynamic process. You want to come close to your love and then it's a bit too intense. You need to retreat a little bit and then you need to go back. And that is the healthy model of intimacy. Um, Now, what happens is that when due to most of our kind of the way we work in intimate relations is based on, you know, our upbringing. I mean, who knows what what, many, many influences. And we're not all state. We're not all stable in our romantic relations. So you could basically you have too much of one or the other, too much rotso, which means too much craving intimacy and not enough withdrawal, or too much distance, which would be the fear of intimacy, and then um, the fear of being engulfed. That's what really a fear of intimacy is and, and being smothered, so therefore uh, withdrawing back too much. So I think you have, uh, you know, young people, every, everyone, not just young people, people involved in intimate relations, you need to know how balanced you are. And, you know, some people are balanced. But other people um, crave intimacy uh, too much, really. And so it's not healthy in their relationship. And others are scared of it. And you can measure these things using psychological tools. I think the work of John Bowlby fits very well with with the Kabbalistic understanding, which is the the attachment theory, that some people are stable in their attachments. Others, he calls it anxious, which would be like craving too much intimacy. And others would be avoidant, which means in fear of intimacy. And, you know, you want to... You need to know, really, are you stable? Are you not stable? Because stable and stable go well together. You, unfortunately, what happens in the singles pool is the stable people get married to stable people. They stay married. <laughs> and the more unstable people, the, the pool of unstable people is increasing. And so uh, if you are unstable, you could do tests for these. The, the, I think the best, the most popular book on it is called Attached. Are you familiar with that book? No, I'm not. No, Attached. Who's it, who's it by? Oh. Um I'll find it's it. not by Bowlby himself, but if you just put attached in Amazon, you'll probably find uh-huh. it. This, it it's no, but what you said about the stability thing is very yes. interesting. So if you, I, I think that, you know, in love, 
if you are stable, then you're going to have a, a, you know, and you find a stable person, you're going to have a, a stable relationship. But what, you, what often happens is that anxious people are drawn to the avoidant people. You have to read the whole book to see why. It's very fascinating. Uh, we're actually drawn to opposites. And that can be a struggle. So I think it's very important. We're not all the same. We, we, we come from different experiences. We need to know um, our intimacy style and, and the style of our, our partners. The, the, I might sound a bit scientific. It's not very, I know you were looking for some romantic insight. We're hardwired in different ways. And you, you know thyself, know thyself. Right. There, are, yeah. there are tools out there for us to know that. And, 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 to and are, you a, are you a big uh, advocate of therapy for people? Uh, let's yes. say you are. Yes. I think therapy is very important. I think that, um, I'll tell you what I think. If you imagine a boat on a wave on the deep sea, so the boat is like your conscious self. I think therapy really helps that. Your actual, your actual self, your incarnation, your conscious, your experiences. I think um, the deep sea is the grand archetypes, the sea of the divine. And the wave is your connection to it. So the wave could be MG is one wave. <laughs> Mark Wilde is a wave. Chassidut is a wave. YU is a wave. We have many different waves of connecting self with, with the ultimate and um, I think that um, we need to focus on all three and, and see how they go together. I'm working on my therapy. I'm connected with a particular expression of, of, of God's will, of, of the holy work of, 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 of Judaism. And then that's anchored in, in the infinite, in the Ein Sof. And for, uh, for learning Kabbalah, you really see how everything in the world is anchored in, in that deep sea. So wow. with all of them together. And a mitzvah connects all through. You do a mitzvah, you, the boat goes straight through to the depth. So that's also part of, that's kind of all of the above, I think. So wow. I think we need to work on all those fronts together to be the best human beings we can. Thank you so, so much, Rabbi Chaim Miller. This has been such a pleasure. If anyone wants to get any of Rabbi Miller's amazing books, please be in touch with us at MJE, uh, or you can just go online and Google yes. Rabbi Chaim Miller. You'll Amazon, see all of this stuff. You can go on Amazon. You can go on kolmanachem.com, K-O-L-M-E-N-A-C-H-G-M.com. I really recommend, and from someone from a very litvish, rational background <laughs> like myself, my, my father's... Um, father was from Bialystok, a real Litvak, and my mother's father was a Yeke. So okay. I've got I've got no Hasidic blood anywhere. <laughs> but it's it's uh, I want to thank you for opening me up to this incredible world, and um, and really in turn opening up so many of our students who are who are more naturally oriented towards this type of these types of uh, teachings and wisdom. Uh, it's been incredibly helpful to us. Thank and you. Shem should bless you with continued success. You should continue to find your X amount of hours every day to be able to write <laughs> more because you're definitely... This is in the middle of my work day, by the way. I'm, I'm uh, sure, I gave it up. I'm sure. yeah. I apologize. No, I no, we... no, but I wanted to do it. So. Thank you. And I hope we can continue to <laughs> And be I, I want to bless you with your amazing work, making 344 <laughs> and... I mean, I'm in Brooklyn and you're in the city, but we're, you know, our paths overlap. I can't tell you how many people have been to our Shabbos table who've been inspired by MG, been touched by MG. So just keep on doing whatever you're doing. Thank you. Well, we look forward to hosting you in person sometime. It would be a great honor. That would be great. Yeah. Yeah. Rabbi Miller, thank you so, so much for your time. We really appreciate it. It should be just good things. On me. All right. Take care. Thank you. Have a good one. Take care, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Wilds Cast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do it, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wilds. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.